Good morning, everyone. Uh, I am pleased to bring this subcommittee together today for a hearing on a very important and timely topic, U.S. security assistance in the Middle East. We have votes uh, at around uh, 11 o'clock today. Imagine the first vote will be held open um, for a while, and so we will um, continue this hearing uh, through the beginning of votes. Uh, other colleagues, I believe, will be joining us. Um, over the last 75 years, the majority of U.S. arms sales worldwide have gone to the Middle East, totaling more than $379 billion in sales. That is a lot of weapons into a very combustible part of the world. Arms sales and other forms of security assistance are an important foreign policy tool for the United States to used to exercise its influence abroad. And as with any foreign policy tool, it's important to continually reevaluate whether that tool is actually achieving its desired policy goals. When the Cold War began as a means to counteract Soviet expansion, we got into the business uh, of supporting authoritarian regimes all over the world. In the Middle East, we often relied on arms sales to cement these relationships. We also needed access to Middle East oil, and this drove our security policy there as well. We wanted oil from the region. Many of those nations wanted our weapons. But it is not the 1970s any longer. The Soviets and the Arab nationalists are gone. Back then, the United States imported 29% of its oil from the Gulf. Today, that number is 12% and declining. Yet even as the foundations of our interests have changed in the Middle East, our security assistance continues to flow unabated into a region that is increasingly unstable. And the post 9-11 global war on terror has dramatically expanded security assistance programs around the world, including the Middle East, with relatively little debate or oversight. Now, there are plenty of good reasons, as I said, to have robust security partnerships in the Middle East, including supporting our ally Israel and countering legitimate threats from Iran, its proxies, and non-state actors. But there is always enormous pressure from both our partners in the region and the defense industrial complex in Washington to do more without any corresponding pressure to examine whether these sales are actually advancing our interests or actually making Americans safer. So today, I'd like to more closely examine some basic assumptions with our witnesses. The first assumption is this. Security assistance makes U.S. partners better able to protect U.S. interests in the Middle East. Has it? We've invested more than $50 billion in Egypt's army over the past 40 years. They did provide support to us in the Gulf War in 1991, but recently that army has been focused more on internal repression than on regional security. Saudi Arabia and the UAE are capable of projecting military power beyond their border in a way that they weren't decades ago, but they often do so in ways that are contrary to U.S. interests, as we've seen in Yemen and Libya. The second assumption, if we don't sell them weapons, they'll turn to China or Russia. Well, the U.S. is the partner of choice not only because so much of our equipment is just far superior to anything the Chinese or the Russians can sell, but also for long-term training, maintenance, and security cooperation that comes with those sales. It's time to ask whether the threat that less arms from the U.S. will cause our partners to simply abandon us and turn to Russia or China, whether that threat's real or whether it's just a red herring. And finally, the third assumption, close military relationships with these countries bring them into the club. It helps professionalize them, incentivizes these nations to become more respectful of international norms like civilian control of the military, 
and respect for human rights. As we know, by and large, this has not happened. Bahrain is more repressive than it was 10 years ago. The Saudi regime's crackdown on political speech is getting worse, not better. Egypt has 60,000 political prisoners in its jails. Now, I'm not arguing for a bright line. I never have. I don't think the U.S. should pull out of our security relationships in the region. It can be a really effective tool. Our aid to the Lebanese armed forces has been vital amid significant political and economic turmoil in that country. The UAE special forces are valuable counterterrorism partners. Aid to Jordan helped secure the country's borders with Syria and Iraq when the ISIS caliphate was at its peak. But some of the resources that we provide to the region today are, I would argue, mismatched to our national security interests. And hopefully that is what we will talk about today. I would also make the argument that the weight we put on security interests and security assistance crowds out our ability to offer other, often much more effective aid. As I said, I support continued funding for the Lebanese army, but honestly, that country is suffering from an economic and political crisis right now, not a security crisis. But the bulk of the things that we have to offer Lebanon are more weapons. So again, the purpose of the hearing today is to have an honest conversation and a realistic assessment of today's security threats in the Middle East and how we need to update our security assistance posture to best meet those threats. And with that, let me turn to the ranking member for his opening remarks. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, for holding this subcommittee hearing. First off, uh, I want to thank uh, members of our, our teams for working together to help get this hearing scheduled. Uh, we've had a battle on moving Senate calendar, and uh, I appreciate your team's commitment to getting this nailed down. I want to thank you for this opportunity to uh, discuss the importance of our security partnerships in the Middle East outside of a time of crisis. Too often, this committee only does the hard work of examining the parameters of our security assistance when things go wrong or during moments of congressional executive disagreement. But the chairman and I work together when there have been efforts to circumvent congressional prerogatives in pursuit of an arms sale agenda that was perhaps too permissive. And now, I am concerned that the pendulum may be swinging too far in the other direction, where assistance may be too restrictive just as the United States is withdrawing our troop presence from their region. As in most exercises of foreign policy, it's crucial that the porridge be the right temperature. So this hearing, is, as I think about it, uh, it really comes down to un, uh, a question of under what conditions the U.S. security assistance enhances regional and U.S. security, and to what extent and uh, at what cost. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee must remain committed to the idea that the United States is engaging in a new great power competition with strategic rivals like China and Russia. Acknowledging that fact and taking appropriate steps to calibrate accordingly is essential. This process requires a reevaluation of our global commitments and presence, especially in the Middle East. The historic Abraham Accords provide an opportunity for such reflect and action. As the United States reduces its own presence, our role in the region must change from the leader to an active supporter. And for this strategy to be successful, we will have to rely upon the governments of the partners and allies we have, not the ones we necessarily wish we had. In the last year, We've seen our partners and allies make peace and normalize relations with our ally Israel, and those in Egypt were critical at helping stop the violent rocket 
attacks from Hamas into Israel. At the same time, we've seen Iran and its proxies, such as Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, and others, rain unguided rockets down on urban centers and attack civilian ships in international waters with sophisticated drones. This complex security environment is one which the United States can and must continue to shape for the sake of global energy and economic markets, for the sake of our enduring counterterrorism mission, and for the sake of regional stability while denying the Middle East as an area of Russian and Chinese influence. All of this is to say that this committee will not be serving the national security interests of the American people if we act as a roadblock to security assistance and arms sales to the Middle East. Security assistance is a highly imperfect tool, and it carries its own degree of risk. But removing it from the table or conditioning it in a way that creates insurmountable barriers or creating false choices between defensive and offensive systems undermines our ability to exert our influence in the region and provides excuses to those who will seek new sources of security assistance, sources like Russia, China, Turkey, or Iran, which do not possess our values or possess our ability and willingness to influence how arms are used. In today's hearing and going forward, we cannot put all of our regional partners and allies into the same box. We may have a strategic and diplomatic requirement to be ambiguous about some of our relations with allies around the world, but we must be crystal clear with our support for others, such as Israel. So in today's hearing, I'm looking forward to a proactive dialogue, and I hope to hear our witnesses expand upon the Biden administration's policies on the urgent requirements of Israel, how the administration's recent conventional arms transfer policy will affect assistance to the Middle East, how the administration intends to shape the use and provision of emerging and advanced technologies to the region, how the departments of state and defense can best work together to ensure America's foreign policy is being conducted holistically and in accordance with all our interests in mind, and the level of importance the administration is placing on support for our partners and allies during this critical moment of rebalancing United States presence away from the Middle East. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Young. It's now my privilege to welcome to the subcommittee uh, both uh, Ms. Mira Resnick, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Regional Affairs in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs at the State Department. Uh, Ms. Resnick previously served as the Senior Professional Staff Member covering the Middle East and North Africa for the House Foreign Affairs Committee um, and also worked at the State Department's Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs. We also have testifying today Ms. Dana Stroll, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East. Previously, she was a fellow at the Washington Institute and a senior professional staff member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, I don't know which order you want to do this in, but the floor is uh, yours to be followed by questions. Good morning, Mr. Chairman, um, Ranking Member Young and distinguished members of the subcommittee. It's an honor to appear before you and with Desdi Stroll to discuss U.S. security assistance to the Middle East. I ask that my full statement be placed in the record. Let me, let me start by saying, as Secretary Blinken has repeatedly said, that the State Department is fully committed to partnering with Congress on these issues, and we welcome the opportunity to engage. 
at a time when strategic competition with the People's Republic of China is our foremost foreign policy mm. challenge, and in an era when so many of the problems we face are global in scope, our engagement in the Middle East is all the more important. Increasingly complex global challenges demand strong partnerships because we cannot act alone. Because we face global problems whose consequences shape security at a regional level, and because America's leadership matters. Our security assistance and arms transfers to the Middle East, as to any part of the world, are a function of our foreign policy, which is why Congress has placed these authorities with the Department of State. Through security cooperation, we seek to disrupt al-Qaeda and related terrorist networks and prevent an ISIS resurgence, address humanitarian crises, and redouble our efforts to resolve the complex armed conflicts that threaten regional stability, including deterring Iranian aggression and supporting our partners and allies' territorial defense. The United States continues to maintain our ironclad commitment to Israel's security, helping to maintain its qualitative military edge in the region consistent with U.S. legal requirements and policy. Nearby, in Jordan, our foreign military financing helps increase cooperation on border and maritime security, cybersecurity and counterterrorism, allowing Jordan to contribute to U.S. operations that advance regional security. We're recalibrating our relationship with Saudi Arabia, aligning it with the administration's approach to security assistance. The president has made clear that our interests cannot be separated from our values. At the same time, we remain committed to helping the kingdom defend, her, defend itself from continuing cross-border attacks from the Houthis in Yemen, supported by Iran. From day one, this administration has worked to end the conflict in Yemen, and the first step we took toward doing so was to suspend two munition sales that the previous administration had notified to Congress. Those sales remain suspended under a policy of ending U.S. support to offensive operations of the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. The Biden-Harris administration is also committed to security cooperation with the UAE, including through the transfers of some of our most important technology. While the projected delivery dates on these sales would be several years into the future, we anticipate a robust and sustained dialogue with the UAE to ensure that any defense transfers meet our mutual strategic objectives to build a stronger, interoperable, and more capable security partnership that will protect the security of our technology and that will comport with our values. Just as our, our, just as our assistance can contribute to the national stability of partners, it can also, if not properly managed, imperil human security. A key part of arms transfer decisions is our efforts to ensure that U.S. origin equipment is not used to perpetuate human rights violations and to minimize the risk of civilian casualties by our partners. As part of the arms transfer decision analysis, we closely scrutinize the human rights track record of recipients and consider whether supplemental civilian harm mitigation measures should be required as a component of an arms sale or whether the transfer should take place at all. When U.S. origin assistance or equipment is used contrary to these goals or when potential violations occur, we will evaluate the full range of consequences. For example, I believe decisions about our support to Egypt's security must be informed, framed, and bound by our values. We have deep concerns regarding human rights violations in Egypt, and we will continue to raise these concerns with Egyptian officials at the senior most levels as we work with Egypt to improve their ability to advance shared security interests, including counterterrorism and border and maritime, maritime security. Let me stress that the fundamental importance of human rights are and will remain an essential element of any arms transfer decision to Egypt, to the Middle East, and globally. And let me end with this. Partners are aware that security assistance and sales from the United States come with high expectations. 
that the U.S. review process takes time. Why is that? It's because we press and hold accountable our allies and partners to reduce civilian casualties, to adhere to the laws of armed conflict, to respect human rights, to enhance their security sector governance processes, to understand when there is no military solution to, this, to a conflict, to prevent military technologies from falling into the hands of bad actors. These are not strings attached, Mr. Chairman. These are the values we believe are inseparable from our national security and that have underpinned our own stability and prosperity, and which we believe will strengthen our partnerships to build peace and security in the region over the long term. America is unique in that respect. No other nation's assistance is designed as intentionally to address the root causes of challenges facing the region. But we also realize that these values help make us safer and make our partners safer. We see these roots and our values as a benefit, not a hindrance for our foreign policy and for our security assistance. Thank you, and I look forward to taking your questions. Chairman Murphy, Ranking Member Young, and members of the committee, it is an honor to testify before you today alongside Das Resnick to discuss the Department of Defense, or DOD, role in U.S. security cooperation in the Middle East. The committee has my full opening statement submitted for the record, so in my five minutes, I'd like to emphasize some key points regarding DOD's role in security cooperation. First, strategy drives programming and resource allocation. The interim national security strategy released earlier this year set out the broad parameters for how the United States will engage abroad to protect Americans at home. In particular, it calls for doubling down on building partnerships throughout the world because our strength is multiplied when we combine efforts to address common challenges, share costs, and widen the circle of cooperation. DOD's security cooperation activities are nested within this guidance. Second, the State Department is in the lead. Diplomacy is in the lead. DOD programs fall within a whole-of-government approach to the region. We utilize security cooperation authorities and programs to expand the capabilities of willing partners, respond to urgent security needs, and invest in the institutional growth of partner forces to share the responsibility for regional security. Over time, our goal is to partner with self-reliant, capable, and accountable partner forces who will work alongside the United States to achieve mutual objectives based on shared threats and shared interests. This is a long-term proposition. Security cooperation programs are also designed to ensure that the U.S. maintains access to key areas and facilities to support the defense of our partners, respond to potential contingencies, and to protect U.S. personnel. Third, security cooperation encompasses more than military sales and funding. For DOD, security cooperation activities include exercises, education and training, operational planning, institutional capacity development efforts, such as security sector reform, strategic planning and doctrine development, human resource management, defense budgeting, training and advising, as well as the transfer of defense articles and services. Within each of these categories, there are opportunities and requirements for the department to demonstrate and impart U.S. values, such as support for a rules-based international order, respect for the rule of law, and civilian control of the military, and commitment to fundamental freedoms and human rights. Fourth, security cooperation activities reinforce broader U.S. objectives. Examples, normalization. As Israel moves into the U.S. Central Command or U.S. CENTCOM area of responsibility, 
We can use military exercises and U.S. convened professional education programs to provide opportunities to facilitate normalization and build upon it by encouraging relationship building between Israel and Arab militaries. Cooperation to counter the threat of attack unmanned aerial vehicles or UAVs, drones. Given the shared regional threat of the Iran-supported UAV network across the region, we can use security cooperation programs to advance shared regional defense. Burden sharing. While the U.S. seeks to remain the security partner of choice in the Middle East, improved integrated regional security among partners is key as the United States right-sizes its posture in the region. Strategic competition. In the Middle East, building the capacity of, of partners is critical to reducing their vulnerabilities to aggression and coercion and improving their ability to defend their sovereignty, their interests, and a free and open international order. A critical tool in, in countering U.S. competitors like China and Russia is to provide superior training and equipment to meet partners' needs. My fifth and final point, congressional consultation and oversight is critical. Thank you for congressional bipartisan support for security cooperation authorities, programs, and funding for the Middle East, and in exercising robust and necessary oversight and monitoring to ensure that security cooperation resources remain aligned with U.S. objectives and continue to be in the interest of the American people. I look forward to your questions. Thank you again. Uh, thank you both for your testimony. Uh, I'm going to turn to Senator Shaheen for the opening round of questions. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to both of our witnesses for being here today. There are those who argue that with the threat from great power competition, that we ought to be reducing our interests in the Middle East um, and Afghanistan. There are those that argue that one reason to withdraw troops from Afghanistan was so we could better focus on the threat from China and Russia and the future great power competition and refocus on Asia. Can you, you address this a little bit in your opening statement, Ms. Resnick, but can you make the case for why it's important for us to continue to be engaged in the Middle East and that security cooperation is one of the important aspects of that? Thank you for your question, Senator. Uh, as I said in my opening statement, um, the, the uh, strategic competition, we are, we are clear-eyed about what strategic competition means. And we understand that China is the pacing threat. But China is looking to undercut our security relationships throughout the world. And, um, and we are only as strong as our partners and alliances, uh, as, as the strength of our partners and alliances. We're facing global, um, global, global challenges, including COVID, including climate change, um, including uh, risks of terrorism. And we need partners to be able to confront those challenges. The U.S. remains the partner of choice in the region, and with our partners, we're looking to reinforce the rules-based international order. China does not provide them that kind of security. And so we will continue to, um, to look to build partnerships and alliances in, in the Middle East to make sure that we can respond to these global challenges um, with our partners and allies. Thank you. Ms. Stroll, one of the places where we've seen uh, the proxy war playing out is in Syria. Um, I very much appreciated your leadership as co-chair of the Syria Study Group, as someone who worked on that legislation. I was really hopeful that the recommendations that the group came up with could make a difference in Syria. Can you talk about what, if any, of those recommendations have been um, implemented by the Biden administration and what you see going forward to address Syria? 
Thank you for that question, Senator. First of all, one of the key recommendations of the Syria study group was that we should retain our U.S. military presence in northeast Syria, both because ISIS is not defeated, because we made commitments to the Syrian Democratic Forces, that they continue to fight ISIS but cannot do that without our support, training, and advice, and because there are tens of thousands of ISIS detainees still under SDF custody, as well as families of ISIS fighters at the Al-Hol IDP camp. We provide, through security cooperation authorities and funding, support and training so that there is a humane and humanitarian approach to the families and children while we facilitate relocation to the countries of origin of those foreign fighters and facilitate long-term solutions to the Syrian and Iraqi detainees. So first of all, uh, for retaining U.S. military presence, the Biden administration is committed to retaining U.S. military presence in northeast Syria. It is also committing to addressing the humanitarian crisis. That is another uh, priority that the Syria study group sought, sought to shine light on is the humanitarian crisis. With the Biden administration, we have not only increased our humanitarian aid to not just northeast Syria, but the rest of Syrians, civilians in need, and we have uh, restored stabilization assistance. So areas that were liberated from ISIS have the opportunity to rebuild and, and are not no longer vulnerable to ISIS influence. Um, Ms. Stroll, I would encourage you to engage with the Syrian diaspora in this country, which have very definite ideas about what might be helpful in Syria and um, still have a lot of connections and relatives there. Also, has there been a detainee coordinator appointed yet? It's one of the things that we um, prescribed in the NDAA several years ago, as you know, and to my knowledge, it was never done under the previous administration. It's a critical question. With respect to the coordinator for the detainee issue, right now, the lead for that is the Counterterrorism Bureau in the State Department. And this reflects back on what both Daz Resnick and I talked about, which is a whole of government approach. When it comes to either security assistance or security cooperation, DOD does not operate in a vacuum, nor does the State Department. In terms of engagement with the Syrian diaspora community, she and I both are in constant contact with our colleagues in the NEA Bureau across the State Department others within the Department of Defense, as well as the National Security Council. I am confident that that engagement is taking place, but I will take that recommendation back. And when it comes to the detainee coordinator, right now we have not only flagged your interest in this and the fact that there is pending legislation, right now the lead for that is in the Counterterrorism Bureau, and they are actively involved in the diplomacy of getting countries of origin to take back both their fighters and the families and DOD facilitates that when requested to do so. Well, the legislation isn't actually pending, it's been passed. And so I, I would hope that that coordinator gets appointed to help with that issue, which is very real, as you know. Mr. Chairman, can I ask one more question? Um, the chairman mentioned in his opening comments the Lebanese Armed Forces and the situation in Lebanon, which is um, sadly, close to a failed state at this point. Um, but one of the things that we know we need to do is continue to support the Lebanese Armed Forces. I was very distressed recently to hear from um, someone in the Middle East that in fact they're having trouble getting food in the LAF that they need given the current crisis. So can you talk about 
why it's important for us to continue to support them, even though I would agree with the chairman that security may not be their number one challenge at this point, but certainly making sure that the institution of the LAF remains strong is really critical for the future of the country. Thank you, Senator, for the question and for your leadership on this on this issue. The LAF is one of our most capable partners in the Middle East. Um, the, our support for the LAF supports our broader policy on pushing back on ISIS and promoting stability. Lebanon has has faced multiple crises um, in the last year, as we all have, but but it is is particularly acute in Lebanon between COVID, political paralysis, economic collapse, societal distress. Um, the, of course, the, the port explosion, which exacerbated everything. Um, the, the LAF is really the sole legitimate defender of Lebanese sovereignty, um, the, the, the sole legitimate defender of the Lebanese people. And they serve as an institutional counterweight to Hezbollah, which continues to put Israelis and Lebanese at risk with their irresponsible rocket attacks, which we condemn wholeheartedly. Um, the, they they continue to jeopardize, um, Hezbollah continues to jeopardize Lebanese stability and sovereignty. Without the LAF, Hezbollah fills the void. And that is exactly the opposite of what we would like to see in Lebanon. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the additional time. Uh, thank you. Uh, Senator Young. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. So as the United States reduces its troop presence in the Middle East and we reposture, focusing more on the Indo-Pacific, um, it's really important that we continue, uh, Ms. Resnick, to uh, evaluate the security dynamics on a regular basis. I know you agree with that. Um, and this, in turn, will inform how we provide security assistance to partners in the region. Can you speak to how the interagency evaluates our partners' uh, security requirements, the methodology, and then um, how that those, those conclusions are then operationalized? Thank you for your question, Senator. Um, we are always looking to make sure that we can provide advanced capabilities to for our partners to be able to defend themselves, um, to be able to enhance regional stability. Um, and at the same time, we're, we are looking to make sure that our partners will, uh, will protect civilians and advance human rights. We look at everything on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, we will cooperate with allies and partners where our priorities align, and we will not shy away from, from defending U.S. interests and American values where they do not. Um, we continue to consult with Congress closely on transfers and on security cooperation. We, again, we welcome your input, um, as the Secretary, as so, Secretary Blinken has said, at the takeoff and not at the landing. Sure. So respectfully, it's, it's, it's not particularly formulaic, right? There's mul multiple factors that have to be looked at and multiple dynamics and uh, uh, so forth. Are there, are there any, based on, on, on uh, your current analysis, are there any current security needs of our Gulf partners that are not being met uh, and um, that need to be addressed? Um, thank you for that question. Um, I'm, I'm happy to, to speak to that more in a, in a different environment. Um, we are constantly um, surveying the landscape there and making sure that our partners do have what they need um, and, uh, and, and we want to make sure that, uh, that they're able to defend themselves. Uh, I will accept that invitation to uh, uh, discuss that in an open in, uh, or in a, uh, a different environment, if indeed uh, that conversation will actually result in some rich material. Uh, and I think my colleagues can identify with that. So um, Ms. Resnick, uh, 
can you speak to whether the, the department has all the authorities it requires to increase IMET to partners and allies and how this will benefit uh, the professionalism and reduce civilian risks uh, during time of conflict? Yeah, we, we, uh, we do implement the IMET program um, and we are always looking to make sure that our partners um, can, um, can learn from our military um, be able to um, to take their lessons, uh, the lessons back to their um, to their home countries, and implement them. Um, and uh, and to my knowledge, we have uh, all of the authorities we need. Although I will um, I will continue to uh, I'll take that back. Um, I do understand that there has been a, a special congressional interest in uh, making sure that women um, are trained um, through our IMET program, and um, and we continue to implement that as a priority of uh, of the State Department as well. I see I have uh, roughly 90 seconds left. Uh, Ms. Stroll, uh, you touched on both the UAE and, and Yemen, and I, I will be asking questions about that. I'll just begin with UAE. Uh, of course, last year there was a, a sale of the F-35 fighters after some discussion up here on the Hill and within the administration. Um, uh, this was the first of its kind in the Middle East to any partner other than Israel. Uh, and um, I thought it was an encouraging step forward uh, with respect to uh, having future interoperability capabilities and uh, trying to ensure that uh, some of our partners didn't look elsewhere uh, for uh, their armaments. Um, but it also brings the point brings up the point that our advanced technology ha technologies have to be provided in some manner that uh, ensures there is uh, uh, security around those technologies. So what steps uh, do the department, does the department take to ensure that uh, these advanced technologies and cutting edge platforms remain secure when they're in the hands of our trusted partners? Thank you for that critical question, Senator. With respect to the UAE, the agreement to sell the F-35 system is an opportunity to enhance the interoperability with the Emirati military for one of our most capable military partners in the region. With the agreement to sell the F-35 platform comes the expectation that the UAE government will protect the sensitive defense technology. There are both security requirements within the paperwork that we complete between the two governments when we agree to the transfer. There are ongoing dialogues throughout any year with the Emirati military where we will discuss issues. Uh, and it's also part of the broader relationship. So one thing that I would like to highlight here, since we were talking about strategic competition before, this is not unique to the UAE with any partner globally, but specifically in the Middle East, because it is a theater for competition, great power competition and strategic competition, what we discuss with our partners is we understand that there will be an economic or trade relationship with China, just like the United States has. But there are certain categories of activities or engagement that our partners may be considering with China that if they do will pose risk to US defense technology, other kinds of technology, and ultimately force protection. Force protection is the highest priority of the entire US government. So we have an ongoing consultation. It is not specific to the F-35, but that is certainly part of it. And if I may take the opportunity just to speak about IMET. It is incredible when I travel throughout the region to meet officers in any partner government who remember fondly their years at our war college, at our different training institutes. We can always use more IMET. Das Resnick's not gonna ask for it. I think this is one of the most critical things we can do because we can demonstrate not just in words, but through programs, 
what civilian control of the military, rule of law, doctrine development, human resource management, maintenance, sustainment. We teach these skills and we build relationships that last over the long term because these partner militaries and officers are engaging with our officers. They go to dinner at our officers' houses. The families form relationships. It's absolutely critical as a tool not only for strategic competition, but ultimately for regional security. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator Young. Uh, I'll take my first round of questioning now. Um, so if you believe that we are in and entering an era of great power competition, it is also an era in which the future of the world is going to depend on the outcome of contest between American-style democracy and Russian and Chinese-modeled autocracy. And so the world is going to be watching uh, when it comes to the way in which we talk about democracy and human rights uh, and whether we're actually willing to back up that talk with action. Um, and so I appreciate, Ms. Resnick, your um, opening remarks with respect to Egypt. Um, but this uh, is a country that is receiving significant USAID, $1.3 billion a year, and in the midst of a dizzying crackdown on political dissent. Mohammed Sultan was a U.S. Uh, citizen who was locked up in an Egyptian jail for years. They would throw sick prisoners into his cell, dying sick prisoners, let them die there, um, and let the corpse sit and rot inside his solitary confinement cell as a means to try to break him. Um, that's the kind of behavior that we empower when we continue to send $1.3 billion to uh, that regime. Not to say that there aren't legitimate reasons why we should align ourselves from a security perspective with Egypt, but isn't there a risk at some point uh, that if there's no consequence for a country like Egypt to continuing this crackdown on political uh, dissent and speech, uh, that it compromises our ability to lead the world when it comes to the advancement of democracy and uh, human rights. Um, I, I heard what you said in your opening uh, remarks, but um, what do you have to say about the worry that ultimately our talk on human rights um, doesn't match up to our actions? Thank you for this very important question, Senator. We share your concerns um, about, uh, about Egypt, about civil society crackdown, about restrictions on expression, on the treatment of American citizens, on the risk of civilian harm during military operations, on recent allegations about what happened in the Sinai. We have raised these issues at the highest level and we continue to do so. We want them to understand, we want Egyptian officials to understand that this is a priority for the United States. Um, the president himself has underscored the importance of a constructive dialogue on human rights with the government of Egypt, and we will continue to pursue this even as we pursue shared security goals um, on, uh, on maritime security, on border security, on counterterrorism. Um, we understand that Egypt remains an important security partner, as evidenced by their leadership in achieving the ceasefire in Gaza. Um, their leadership and their partnership remains critical today, but we will continue to raise human rights at the highest levels to make sure that the Egyptian government understands that this is a priority. Um, my opening comments were designed to sort of provoke this conversation about whether our assumptions 
uh, about the reasons for our aid are, are matched to current realities. And either one of you can take this question, but let me ask that, that question relative to Egypt. Um, is our aid necessary today in order to continue to prompt Egypt to achieve a detente with Israel, or is it now in their own security interest? Do they get something out of that relationship um, on its own, independent of our security assistance? Uh, are, are they going to cut off our access to the canal if we withdraw a portion of our security uh, uh, assistance? Um, isn't there a case to be made that some of the things we used to purchase with aid to Egypt, Egypt will do without that aid or without the exact amount of aid that we provide today? Haven't circumstances changed since we began this $1.3 billion relationship in 1987? I'll take the question first, give Das Resnick a break. Uh, so, so the bottom line for President Biden is that he values the relationship with Egypt. He believes they are an important security partner. He discussed in his phone call with President Sisi in May the U.S. intent for a constructive dialogue on human rights but we also believe and support that Egypt has legitimate security concerns and believe that security assistance to Egypt is a critical tool in supporting those needs, whether it's border security, maritime security. We did see early in the administration when the uh, Evergreen was stuck in the Suez, international maritime traffic, both commercial and military, was stuck. Egypt matters, both for Suez transit, for U.S. military overflight, cooperation with Egypt for Red Sea security, maritime security. The current view of the administration that is that Egypt is playing a constructive role when it comes to border security, uh, Libya, GERD, obviously the conflict in Gaza, et cetera. In terms of the FMF, it remains an important tool for us to work with Egypt in making sure that they have U.S. origin defense articles oriented towards what we assess to be shared security threats whether it's counterterrorism, maritime security, border security. And I would note here um, that Egypt is interested in continuing this relationship with us. They recently agreed to upgrade their Apache helicopter fleet by using blended financing, not just U.S. security assistance, but also Egyptian national funds. This is an indicator that they, for us, and they believe this as well after extensive negotiations between the two governments, that they are interested in putting their resources to bear, not just U.S. forces, as they upgrade their U.S. defense articles. And, and the question I'm simply asking is for us to assess the cost of altering our relationship versus the cost of continuing as it it, it unmodified. The cost of continuing it unmodified is to send a signal of endorsement to this behavior. My question is, we should really get our heads wrapped around what the cost of altering the relationship is. My case is that um, there would not be a significant alteration because the things that you just laid out are in Egypt's security interest, separate and aside from the exact nature of our security uh, relationship, um, but um, interested in continuing this uh, dialogue. One last uh, question before I turn to Senator Van Hollen, um, and that is on the issue of uh, end-use monitoring. Um, I know this is something the administration cares uh, deeply about. We obviously had some disturbing uh, revelations during the last four years about the way in which the UAE was transferring some of uh, our uh, equipment to uh, Salafist-aligned militias in Yemen. Um, admittedly, it's difficult to track how every single weapon is going to be ultimately used. 
Um, but are there ways in which we can uh, have a, a tougher and stricter end-use monitoring program uh, that allows us to have more visibility than we do today on the ways that our equipment and weapons uh, are used? Is there a better way to do this? Thanks for your question. We take those the issues of end-use monitoring very, very seriously. We take all credible allegations of any authorized transfer or end uses of U.S. or of U.S. origin equipment very seriously. We investigate them um, consistent with applicable law. When there is a violation, we have several different options that we can pursue um, to address misuse or end use concerns. Um, we want to make sure that every transfer advances our foreign policy. The way that we look at, at each transfer, we're looking at history of misuse. Um, we're looking at history of end-use abuse. Um, so, uh, so we do understand that, um, that, these, that these issues um, are, are complicated, but we are, um, we are always looking to do better. Great. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank both of you for your testimony and for your service. Uh, and I agree with the comments uh, that have been made by my colleagues um, regarding the importance of security assistance uh, to U.S. interests, national security interests, as well as that of our partners. In fact, back in the 1980s, I served a short stint, sort of an extended internship at the Pentagon in what was then called the Defense Security Assistance Agency. And my job was to write the justifications that came to Congress for various security assistance programs. So um, I understand the importance. I also, from that experience, realized that when I started for the next, next fiscal year justification, I just took the previous year justification and made some edits. And so part of the lesson there, though, is something the chairman's breaking, bringing up, which is we get in these ruts. I mean, it's very easy just to continue in the same course that you're already on. And we do need to step back and reevaluate lots of these uh, issues. Uh, you would both agree, I believe, that it's not in our security interest when a recipient of U.S. weapons or other forms of security assistance uses them as a tool of repression or to crack down on human rights. Would, would you both agree with that? Yes. Yes. Okay. So to pick up on Senator Murphy's question on end use and taking credible allegations of violations of end use requirements seriously. Can each of you give us a recent example of, an, of pursuing a credible report uh, of a violation of what we thought was an end use uh, requirement? So I think that there are um, there are two ways to look at this. Um, there is the, the a violation of end use, meaning um, when um, the the intended recipient is not the one who is who is doing it. And um, and uh, uh, Senator Murphy um, mentioned mentioned one of those um, those cases. Then there is the um, the misuse of, um, of of U.S. origin equipment, and um, you will you will understand that um, that 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 is the consideration that we used when we decided to suspend the two munition sales um, to Saudi Arabia, that we saw that we, we did a risk assessment, and that is what we're, we, are, we are implementing now. We are, um, we are implementing risk assessments for each of these transfers on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and we, our risk assessment told us that those munitions could be used, um, more likely than not, to be used um, to result in civilian harm. And so that is why we suspended those, uh, those two munition sales. Thank you. Now, there's also the Leahy Law, and that's a different set of requirements. Um, 
Could you speak, and I, let me ask you this, when you get credible reports of violation of the Leahy laws, do you also pursue those, investigate those? Yes, we do that with um, with our partners um, uh, at the embassies. We also do that with the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. And the Defense Department oversees a different, sometimes different sets of programs, but do you also uh, pursue credible reports of violations of Leahy law? Absolutely. When I see them, whether it comes from outside communities, press, social media, or reports that come directly to me, I make a point of asking my staff to work with the different implementing agencies and in the field to investigate, raise it directly, and then I raise it myself. Okay. And have either of you received credible reports of violation of the Leahy laws since you've been in your positions? Um, we have several different um, threads of, that, that, uh, that we are looking into. Um, I don't think that we have made any determinations at this point. Um, and when we do, um, or if we do, then we would come to Congress. Okay. So if you find there's been a violation of a Leahy law, you would inform the Congress. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And can you also provide the Congress with the results of your investigations into violations of the Leahy law, even if you don't make a determination? Uh, as you can imagine, there are going to be cases where uh, different people could reach different conclusions. Would you have any objection with sharing your investigation in the credible reports uh, of the Leahy law with the Congress? We always make sure to, um, to engage with Congress on, on these issues. Okay. I, I would just ask, uh, in closing, Mr. Chairman, if, if you could provide um, us uh, with uh, your, you know, any investigations of Leahy law violations that you've pursued within the last year. That would be, or the last, since January. Would that be okay? Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, great. Uh, Senator Young. Uh, thank you, Chairman. I'm going to go a bit off script. I know we're discussing foreign arms sales right now, but uh, I'd, I'd like to uh, discuss the arms that are finding their way from Iran into the Houthis' hands in, in, in Yemen. Uh, of course, we uh, have uh, a real interest. Our, our partners and allies have an interest uh, in ensuring that uh, key weapons and technology do not continue to, to flow there in a manner that further destabilizes the country and perpetuates the civil war. It's been, it's been reported that the recent attack on the Mercer Street tanker in the Gulf of Oman uh, originated from Yemen with Iranian-produced drones. Can you confirm those public reports? Thank you very much for that question, Senator. Yes, I can confirm the reports and a few comments if you, if you would allow me to. First of all, last Friday, U.S. Central Command released its assessment based on the exploitation of the wreckage and, the, and what we were able to recover from the Mercer Street. And what U.S. Central Command did in cooperation with the Office of the Secretary of Defense, the Joint Staff, and NAVSENT is look at the different components that we, rec we recovered, compare them to other known Iranian-supported uh, UAVs that we have exploited, and were able to match and see similarities, which is why CENTCOM was able to conclude and put out its press release that, yes, this was an Iran-backed one-way drone attack on the Mercer Street. And secondly, in addition to that DOD investigation, there was also a multilateral G7 statement where we worked diplomacy first, 
to work with the members of the G7 to put out a statement condemning Iran for the one-way attack UAV on the Mercer Street. Okay, is there any, uh, that's incredibly helpful and, and answered some of my, my next question, which is uh, whether you can shed some light on uh, how you determine uh, by working with partners in the region, um, uh, how you might interdict uh, the trafficking of arms out of Iran into the hands of the Houthis or other militant groups. Absolutely. You've seen uh, the administration do some of this. A good example is a few months ago, there was the interdiction of the, of the Monterey uh, ship, which also was carrying a lot of weapons, which we assessed were Iranians supplied for the Houthis. We have seen, uh, let me take a step back. What we see across the region is Iranian arming, training, and funding of terrorist groups, non-state actors, and militias across the region, all of which aim to undermine the governments and the partners that we want to work with, terrorize civilians, and prevent them from achieving stability. In the Yemen context, we have seen more attacks from the Houthis launched at Saudi Arabia in the first half of this year than we have for several prior years. Iran is increasing the lethality and complexity of both the equipment and the knowledge it transfers to the Houthis so that they can attack Saudi territory, Saudi civilians, and there's also a very sizable U.S. population in Saudi Arabia that is under risk because of the Iran-backed Houthi attacks. U.S. forces are experiencing the Iran-backed UAV network and the force protection issues we are experiencing in Iraq, and even Israel has publicly spoken about the drones from Iran that it has downed in defense of its own territory. This is a regional-wide threat. All of our partners are concerned about it, and this is actually where security cooperation programs can be very effective. Uh, thank you. I, uh, I look forward to continued vigilance on that front, and I, I get the sense that uh, uh, that's a real point of emphasis, so that's great. Um, during the recent attacks from Hamas, Israel used the Iron Dome rocket defense system to defend itself uh, and, and save countless lives uh, from uh, indiscriminate rocket fire. President Biden has committed to resupplying Israel with the Iron Dome interceptors that were expended uh, over the course of that fighting. Uh, despite the legitimate, legitimate security needs, more than a dozen um, Democratic members of Congress sought to block such a resupply and even introduced a resolution in both chambers to do so, to, to block this resupply. Um, this resupply is crucial. So, uh, Ms. Stroll, what's the status of the administration's efforts to fulfill the president's commitment and assist Israel's resupply of the Iron Dome? Thank you so much for that question. President Biden was clear in his statement of support for replenishing the Iron Dome uh, defense system. Secretary Austin, also in testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee, affirmed his support for replenishing and expanding the Iron Dome defense system. We agree with your assessment that it was uh, notably effective uh, in responding to the attacks from Gaza. I'm sorry, my time's over. What's the status of it? We have unequivocally stated our support for emergency or for supplemental appropriations in support of replenishing and expanding the system. We have consulted extensively with Congress and provided information, uh, paperwork to you all to support how, how you choose to proceed in funding the request. So you need, you need a supplemental emergency appropriations. That's the only route to, uh, to achieve that objective. The Is that accurate? 
the miss yes the missile defense funding that we provide to Israel 500 million dollars a year in an MOU what Israel assesses it needs is beyond that 500 million dollars a year we support their request for supplemental appropriations and have provided information to Congress in support of that request thank you uh, thank you, Senator Young. Just continuing on that line of inquiry, uh, Ms. Stroll, I, I have heard some uh, people um, sort of question whether going forward, Iron Dome, as it is currently constituted, will provide significant enough security against rocket attacks emanating from uh, Hamas. Um, understanding it is still um, an incredibly effective system. Are we also in dialogue with the Israelis as to enhancements or as to other protective measures that we can engage in with them to protect them from future attacks? Thank you for that question. Yes, we are. We are in constant and consistent dialogue with the Israelis on a variety of issues related to their security needs, including the Iron Dome defense system. Their assessment and our assessment is that it was exceptionally effective in protecting Israeli civilians during Operation Guardian of the Walls. They are seeking this supplemental funding because they support and believe that it saves lives. We also have a variety of other missile defense programs, as well as other programs to support Israel's security needs. Um, let me turn to the question uh, of China, because I do want to make sure um, you know, we right-size China's ambitions in the region. Um, there is no doubt China has an intent to grow their security partnerships in the region. But I also think that they benefit from a world in which the United States has the primary um, security obligation for a region that right now is much more essential to the delivery of oil to China than to the United States. Um, and, and so I, I'd love for one of you to talk a, a little bit more about uh, what China's real interests in the region are, whether they are actually willing to sort of take over from the United States as the primary security guarantor for especially Gulf nations uh, that uh, export oil to uh, the world, or whether they are sort of looking to use their security assistance as a means to grow political partnerships with countries there, well, frankly, hoping to maintain a U.S. security umbrella under which um, they uh, live and benefit. Thank you for that question. It truly is the question of the day. Um, the, China has shown no interest in, nor a capability, to contribute to regional security and stability. And we ask our partners to consider that. Um, we know that China and our Middle Eastern partners will have a commercial relationship. We have a commercial relationship with China. Um, the Secretary, Secretary Blinken has said our relationship with China will be competitive when it should be, collaborative when it can be, and adversarial when it must be. The common denominator here is that we need to engage China from a position of strength. And security cooperation will undoubtedly play a role there in our response to strategic competition in the Middle East, but also beyond the Middle East globally. Um, it requires us to work with allies and partners, not denigrate them, because our combined weight is much harder for China to ignore. Um, so as, as um, Dastrol mentioned, there are certain categories of um, of cooperation with uh, with the PRC that um, that we that we can't um, that we cannot live with, and we have made that uh, we've made that clear. Well, towards that end, um, according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, some defense officials say they believe China hopes to 
build a base in the Middle East, uh, perhaps in the UAE. Uh, on a scale of one to 10, um, how problematic would it be if China were to establish a base in a country like the United Arab Emirates that is about to get some of our most sensitive defense equipment? Thank you for that question. Uh, the current assessment is that China has a global strategy of pursuing military installations all over, including in the Middle East. It seeks to build installations, and, and the Middle East is one example, uh, so that ultimately it can serve its own interests, not provide or enhance regional stability and security. So in any country with, with which we have a deep partnership, we talk about the risks uh, to U.S. defense technology, to U.S. forces of a Chinese military installation. And I'll just add in terms of whether or not China seeks to take over for the U.S. as the security guarantor of choice, what we actually view in a demonstrated pattern of how Chinese engage, China engages with countries across the world, and we warn and discuss with our partners in the Middle East, that ultimately Chinese engagement in certain categories will violate their sovereignty, which they prioritize. And then I would note when we were talking before about the Iran-supported UAV network or the Mercer Street, China was silent, both at the Security Council and in signing on to any statement. This is not a country, uh, Beijing, that is going to support our partner partners in their legitimate security and defense concerns and needs, and we remind them of that. Well, I hope our partners noticed that silence. Um, final two questions. First, um, on the missile technology control regime. This is a voluntary agreement, but one that we perceive to be very important to uh, our global security interests. Uh, prior to the Trump administration, we had interpreted that agreement uh, as preventing us from selling certain armed drone technology to countries sort of outside our, our very closest partners. Uh, thus far, the Biden administration has not reversed the Trump administration's reinterpretation of that treaty and, as you said at the outset, are pursuing the sale of Reaper drones to the United Arab Emirates. Um, do you expect other members of the MTCR to issue their own reinterpretations? And are we concerned about the proliferation of advanced armed drones to the Middle East? It sort of feels like we've just sort of given up on this one. We've just said there's so many countries selling so many advanced drones that we might as well just be in the business as well. I'm not convinced that that's the right argument uh, here. We still are a moral pace setter around the world. Um, so a, a, a minute or two on sort of how you perceive the health of MTCR today um, and what you perceive to be the ways in which we can still try to lead a global conversation about the danger of the proliferation of armed drones. I think we have frankly lost a lot of our moral authority through the reinterpretation of that regime. Thank you for, for that question, Senator. Um, the Biden-Harris administration conducted a uh, review of our UAS export policy, determined um, that, we, that we would maintain the decision to invoke national discretion on the implementation of our commitment to the MTCR, but that does not mean that the United States will automatically approve a UAS export. We will still conduct a case-by-case -case review. The non-proliferation factors that are identified in MTCR guidelines will continue to play a really important role. We'll consider the transfer's effect on U.S. national security interests, including human rights and other foreign policy objectives, as well as the recipient's 
the recipient country's capability and their willingness to um, effectively, responsibly use this technology and, um, of course, to safeguard U.S. origin technology. And uh, finally, just a, a question on the sort of merits of escalatory versus de-escalatory policy. This town loves military escalation, makes a lot of people rich here. Uh, de-escalation is not as lucrative. I, over the years of meeting with the Iranian foreign ministry, I'm one of the few here that does, um, take everything they say with a giant shaker of salt. But I think there's some truth to one of the things they consistently say, which is that you know, our missiles are primarily pointed at the Saudis. And every time you sell them more, every time you give them and the Emiratis more equipment and more lethality, more capability, we invest more in our own. What's our sort of overall thinking about, if, if our interest is in ultimately getting the Iranians to give up their ballistic missile program, um, how do we defend a continued buildup of arms on the other side of that contest for regional hegemony? What's our sort of current thinking on the benefits of arms escalation versus arms de-escalation? Thank you for that question. Um, it gives us an opportunity to reflect, as does the, the, the entire hearing, on uh, some of the bigger picture issues. Um, security cooperation um, plays a really important role in, in, in our Middle East partnerships, but it is not the only answer. Um, and, uh, and so I would stress that um, our arms transfers, our security cooperation, are not going to be the, um, the answer, the magical, um, the magic bullet to, um, to as, as you said, to Saudi insecurity. Um, they're not going to be the answer to, um, to instability in the region. That will come through diplomacy and through a political solution to the region's, unfortunately, many military conflicts. Um, the, 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 as I said in my opening statement, um, we rely on our partners to understand when there is no military solution to a conflict, um, and we will continue to stress that to them. And that is why you saw in the first days of, uh, of the Biden-Harris administration um, that the president um, made, made sure to reinvigorate our diplomacy with, with Yemen, to appoint a special envoy, Tim Lenderking, um, to be able to, um, to reinvest in, um, in our diplomatic efforts. Ms. Resnick. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow up uh, with the chairman's indulgence on, on his line of, of questioning. So it, it seems as though we're, what we're seeking to do is to establish or reestablish deterrence. And that should be the objective. Um, I'm being normative here. You tell me if it, uh, the Biden Biden-Harris administration disagrees. But um, so we want to reestablish deterrence. We don't currently have that. Uh, we, we have these uh, Iranian proxies throughout the Middle East. We have the enrichment uh, of uranium. We have uh, the bombing of, uh, of tankers in the Gulf of Oman uh, through you know, functionaries that have provided weaponry uh, to these proxies. So all manner of development of sophisticated missiles. So we, we need to reestablish deterrence and foreign arms sales uh, can can be one tool uh, that uh, assists in that overall endeavor. We're not seeking overmatch. Uh, that uh, that could indeed be provocative and and um, I think catalyze the Iranians uh, to um, 
to seek deterrence on their own part. So um, what say you about my line of analysis? Of course, and that is why I opened with, with my answer saying that, uh, that security cooperation plays a critical role. It's just not, it's not the only answer to, to, the, to our relationships in the Middle East. If I may, Senator, I would respond also that the U.S. military does have conventional overmatch vis-a-vis Iran, which is why you see Iran investing in other kinds of capabilities, not its conventional military capabilities. This is why we have seen, or we can under, why you see Iran investing in support for regional terrorism networks, one-way attack UAVs, and its ballistic missile program, because it views those as its way to threaten the United States and our partners because of that convention. So the United States has, has overmatch. Conventional overmatch. Conventional overmatch. Is it our objective for our partners in the region to have conventional overmatch vis-a-vis Iran? Our objective for partners in the region is to ensure that they have the capabilities and resources to defend themselves while we invest in diplomacy and political processes to wind down conflicts because there is no military solution to the conflicts of the region, nor to Iranian aggression. So that sounds like deterrence uh, in, in parallel with diplomatic uh, efforts. When the Biden administration came into office, it inherited an aggressive Iranian uh, uh, strategy throughout the region in reaction to a maximum pressure campaign that did not bring Iran back to the negotiating table, nor did it tamp down or deter Iranian aggression. Our forces are experiencing that, Iranian aggression every day through Iran-backed militias in Iraq. Saudis are experiencing it every day from Iran-backed Houthis, as are other partners who are concerned both about the air defense threat and the proliferation of armed UAVs, which are going to non-state actors across the Middle East. What we are seeking to do while we invest in diplomacy and political processes is respond to our partners' legitimate defense needs. Much of that derives from Iranian fingerprints of terror training, arming, and funding of groups all over the region, as well as guidance and direction to them to do attack U.S. forces and U.S. partners to sow division and tensions between the U.S. and its partners, while we are working to reassure partners that we will have their back in confronting Iranian aggression. Very good. Thank you. Um, If I could, uh, I've got one final line of inquiry, and, and it pertains to the expiration last October of the, of the UN uh, conventional arms embargo against Iran, against the strenuous objections and, and uh, extensive efforts of, of, of the Trump administration. Uh, two primary sources of arms, Russia and China, succeeded in ensuring that the regime in Tehran had access to some of the most sophisticated uh, weapons. and. Um, I just uh, am, am looking, I think, Ms. Resnick, perhaps you can speak to how Iran has capitalized on both the import and export dynamics of the embargo, which is lapsing, especially as it concerns Russia and China. If I may, Senator, what we've seen is China sign a 20-year strategic partnership agreement with Iran. We've seen the Russians at work to negotiate arms transfers agreements with Iran as well. It is yet another reason why our partners need to be reminded 
that the U.S. is the security partner of choice who will responsibly work with them to respond to their legitimate defensive needs, and turning toward China or Russia will not support their security or stability, especially when both of those governments are looking to embolden and enhance Tehran's conventional military capabilities. Has, has, has the lapsing of the embargo, the winding down of the embargo, helped facilitate some of this transfer of arms from Russia and China into Iran? We've certainly seen uh, reinvigorated interest by Beijing and Moscow after the uh, end of the embargo in working on deals for weapons transfers and sales to Tehran. We, of course, have other tools at our disposal in the U.S. government, whether it's sanctions, our alliances and partnerships, our transatlantic partnerships, and our security partnerships in the Middle East, which can reinforce our security and attempt to push back on those weapon sales. But certainly it puts us in a position we're going to have to double down on both our diplomacy, our security partnerships, and explore other tools to make sure that Tehran does not gain conventional military capabilities, especially when it is outside of the JCPOA, making advances on its nuclear program, and ramping up its regional aggression. So it sounds like it's it's really aggravated uh, the situation. And uh, would I be right to infer that uh, it's also uh, this receipt of conventional arms from Russia and China in Iran has has, uh, has aggravated uh, the situation with respect to the vast network of Iranian proxies as they continue to provide conventional arms to these Iranian proxies. Let me respond by saying I certainly don't see any actions, whether diplomacy or otherwise, from Moscow or Beijing to impress upon Iran that continuing to support militias and terrorist organizations across the region is not in their interest, that it somehow undermines Russian or Chinese security. These are not governments that are pushing Iran to take steps that would restore regional security and stability, wind down conflicts, or move towards political processes. There's, there's no doubt in my mind that there are Houthis or members of Hezbollah carrying around Russian and Chinese conventional armaments uh, that they've received from uh, the Iranians as that embargo has, has been wound down. So yeah, thank it, you. Yeah. It, it's another reason why we need to remind our partners that these are not partners, that these are not governments in Beijing or Moscow that are actually working to do things that are in their security interests. Uh, thank you. I, one final question that occurs to me just to sort of cap off the dialogue we were having and that Senator Young continued on the effect of uh, escalation and de-escalation on deterrence. Um, the JCPOA did not nor was intended to solve all of our outstanding issues with Iran, but as a mechanism to discuss and promote the ways that you can affect Iranian behavior other than through the sale of arms to their competitors. Um, during the time that the JCPOA was in effect, um, we did not see the level of attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq from Iranian proxies as we have since the JCPOA expired. Is that correct? That is correct. And so the question for this committee is whether that is coincidental uh, or whether having an ability to have a diplomatic conversation with an enemy actually does affect their behavior vis-a-vis -vis our security interests in the region. Um, 
I want to thank you both for your testimony today. Um, we appreciate your recommendations and your insight. Uh, look forward to continuing this conversation. Uh, for any members of the committee wishing to submit questions for the record, the hearing is going to remain open until the close of business on Friday, which happens to be Friday the 13th. Uh, and with that, uh, this hearing is adjourned. <laughs>